In this episode of the Engineering Commons podcast, we talk with Dave Goldberg and Catherine Whitney about their new book, A Whole New Engineer. We hope you'll enjoy our conversation as we discuss how the role of the engineer is changing and the manner in which we educate such engineers needs to change also. The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 65, A Whole New Engineer, October 2nd, 2014. So, Brian, are you the same engineer that you were when you first graduated? Oh, heck no. And how are you different? I would say I've done something. Uh, I would also say that uh, I don't have a dot-com-driven notion of what a technical profession is supposed to be like. Mm-hmm. And what's a what's a dot-com-driven notion? Oh, I, I don't know. Uh, if, if you came up in a certain age, you get your technical degree, be it CSI or engineering of some sort, and you go and launch your business right out of school and cash out for a, a couple hundred mil, but that would have been back in the 90s, <laughs> I think, given that the going rate for a ridiculous idea right now is, what, $2.5 billion, So well, it's, it's measured in Instagrams, I believe. Where yes. an Instagram is a billion dollars. <laughs> is that is that is that the new uh, Library of Congress? Uh, I don't know is if it's it? official yet, but that's what I've seen on the internet. So it's only a matter of days now. Yeah. Yes. As a standard unit, two point five Instagrams is what Minecraft was purchased for. Right. Well, unfortunately, most engineers never see that kind of uh, bankroll rolling in. They uh, deal with a a more reasonable salary. Uh, oh, understood. But uh, but we we do as engineers do have to sort of reinvent ourselves as we go along. You know the the skills in, uh, that we learned in college are often not directly applicable in the workplace. Uh, we often have to uh, learn uh, new uh, software. You know when I came in and started drawing, we were do- we were doing drawings on the drafting board, and then you had to learn AutoCAD, and then AutoCAD went out of favor, and it was SolidWorks. And so. You know, you're constantly having to learn new skills and, and new abilities. Uh, hopefully you, you get some experience within your industry and you, you learn a little more about that. So you're more effective. And so, uh, in the same way that, that we engineers have to reinvent ourselves over time, those who are in engineering education, uh, are discovering that they want to reinvent the way that engineering education is performed. And so uh, this evening we've invited back, uh, one of our previous guests, uh, Dave Goldberg. And uh, he is a co-author for a book called A Whole New Engineer. And so uh, Dave leads 3Joy Associates, which is a consulting firm that advises educational institutions and is also the president and founder of Big Beacon, the social movement for transforming engineering education, which happens to be a educational partner with the Engineering Commons. And so some listeners, as I said, may remember Dave from episode 37 when he joined us to talk about the manner in which engineering roles have changed over time. Accompanying Dave today is his writing collaborator, Catherine Whitney, a New York-based writer who has previously written or co-written more than 40 books on a wide range of topics, including nutrition, social issues, and entrepreneurial success. The remaining co-author of A Whole New Engineer, Mark Somerville, a professor of electrical engineering and physics at Olin College in Boston, was unfortunately unable to join us for this interview. Uh, so Dave and Catherine, we're very glad to have you join us today. 
Welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, in the uh, the previous episode with Dave, we got to ask him a little bit about his engineering background. Uh, Catherine, how did you get involved and or interested in engineering? Um, engineering is not a topic that has been a part of my life. I got involved through the idea of writing a book about the future of education, which just happened to be around the subject of engineering. Okay. And so, and, and in the process became totally in, immersed in this world of engineers and engineering education. Um, you know, finding, you know, broader issues, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, there's, there, there are stereotypes about engineers as being kind of like overly technical and overly focused on technical matters. Mm-hmm. But, you know, what I discovered is that in the broad scope of hum- humanity, engineers are actually driving forces in creativity and, and, uh, social engineering and, and, you know, other fields that are exciting, especially to young people today and really have so much relevance in our society. And so, you know, it wasn't a limited scope for me. It was like, an opportunity to really explore some of the big issues of our time through the question of engineering education. And so over this period of, uh, I guess it's been several years now, how is your, how is your impression of the engineering profession changed? Uh, if, if it was before the traditional, you know, nerdy Dilbert type character, uh, what do you think now? Well, the, the, th- the image that became sort of a, a primary image for me and the most exciting image was when, you know, one of the, uh, the engineering educators, uh, that I spoke with said, you know, when I was in high school, I was good in math and science. And so everybody said, you should go into engineering. And that's what I did. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I'm also a musician and I'm also a creative person and a communicator. And nobody ever said, you're an in, you're a musician, and you're a communicator, and you're a creative person. You should go into engineering, and but right. but that's the shift that we're talking about in terms of the future of engineering education. And I thought that was an exciting idea. Right now, as part of uh, preparing for this book and writing this book, you weren't just uh, communicating with your co-authors. You were actually going out and interviewing. Uh, engineers and engineering students, were you not? Yes, yes, yes. I spoke to many students and um, many, you know, working engineers and and sort of thought leaders also in in fields of technology and business. Mm-hmm. And and so were they uh, at all surprised to see that somebody from outside the engineering community was interested in what they had to say? Nobody seemed at least the least bit surprised, actually. You know, I didn't, I, you know, I didn't get any kind of like attitude of like, well, we're engineers and you're not, you don't know what you're talking about. It was more because what I was doing really was listening. I wanted to hear. And, you know, my questions to people were very fundamental questions. They weren't technical questions about engineering. And that's the whole point. They were questions about, how you envision your contribution to society and your own happiness, uh, you know, how, uh, you know, how you make a living, how you envision, you know, the future of engineering. 
they were really broad questions that frankly everyone is interested in whether you're an engineer or not you know and i came to see that you know i mean these are you know the engineering students and the engineers that i spoke with were people who were really interested in very broad social questions mm-hmm. so not quite the uh, stereotypical nerdy dilbert character that uh, we're often made out to be no no that that's true and everybody <laughs> everybody kind of laughs about that a little bit you know kind of like the big bang theory you know right. it's kind of a joke uh, but you know it it really wasn't something that i experienced at all right well th- we laugh about it because there's a c- certain amount of truth to it uh, we yes. can be pretty nerdy <laughs> <laughs> um, but nerdy for a purpose you know Yes, yes. I've definitely gotten some strange looks at the bar with my friends as we discuss digital logic topologies and certain ways to implement your FPGAs. But that that those are far and few between. Yes, and I didn't have those kinds of conversations <laughs> with people actually. Uh, but uh, yeah, those are best when they come up organically, anyways. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 So, so the name the name of this new book is a whole new engineer, which sort of begs the question, what's wrong with the old engineer? First of all, there's, there's, there's in many ways, there's, there's nothing wrong with the, the, the old engineer. The old engineer was, was appropriate in a time of, of expertise and, and narrow technical focus. You know, we came out of, we came out of World War II into a time of, of uh, where, very large vertically and horizontally integrated corporations hired people to be fairly narrow experts and that's that's what that's what the corporate world wanted but um we've gone through some pretty wrenching changes since uh so so in that sense the that kind of engineer was appropriate to those times um we've come through s- some uh, uh, some pretty pretty strange uh, transitions that have taken place very quickly um, from the quality revolution to the entrepreneurial revolution to the IT revolution. And now we're in this very different time, whereas Catherine was just saying, we want engineers to um, be more creative, more um, broadly educated in certain ways, more integrative. And so, um, so the, we think the title of the book actually says that there's it's it's new and 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 the sense that there's a sense of greater holism um uh, dom grasso now the uh, former dean of engineering at vermont and now uh, provost at uh, at delaware uh talks talks about holistic engineering and it's in that sense so how do we integrate that kind of narrow technical education of the of the of the 50s um with with these other things that are now being demanded in in this creative era that we live in, mm-hmm. we we touched on that a little bit in our last episode too. Where if you get hired for a job nowadays, it may not just be straight engineering; it's yeah. technical writing, it's you know product definition, it's actually testing the product and doing the math, and it's a whole wide range of things. And it's communications, and communications came up as being a primary. Uh, you know, skill that that was absolutely essential for the whole new engineer. Oh, agreed, definitely. Uh, 
Wow. I wouldn't be able to function in my job if I didn't have good communication skills. Exactly. And that's, and that's kind of the opposite of this, the stereotypical, you know, nerdy engineer who can't really talk to real people. Yeah, lock, you know? lock yourself in a room for a few days, come out with a new product. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. It's the, it's the opposite is needed. Well, there was a sense that the, the, the engineer of the fifties was this narrow expert and, and, and working largely as an individual, the whole, the whole rise of teamwork really, you know, was given great impetus in the quality movement, the, the whole notion of quality teams and so forth. So, so there's this, this sense that, you know, engineering is now firmly a team sport. Um, and, and so that's, you know, that's, uh, that's, that's one piece of it, but, you know, I think the point that was just made of, well, you know, it's not just the technical stuff, you know, so engineers used to be sort of narrow problem solvers. Um, it, it, it now, in many ways, companies are looking for engineers to be problem finders and opportunity finders. And that's a, that's a big change. I mean, so that, that, that requires uh, almost a kind of strategic vision or um, if not in a broad sense strategy, the sense of, well, okay, so what will, what will make this product work in the marketplace? How do we, um, how do we, uh, how do we get products that will give our company an edge or, 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 or do something, uh, make, make something run faster or jump higher? Would you say that the uh, day of the one engineer project is pretty much over too? I mean, as as things have become so complex, I mean, anytime you had an MC, now when every washing machine has an MCU, all of a sudden it's now a collaborative electrical, mechanical, software yeah. manufacturing project. Well, that's, I mean, you just, yeah, that's a great point. So it's, it's multidisciplinary in the sense of crossing engineering disciplines. And then, and then once you bring in the, the business dimensions, these, these teams have to touch on, you know, marketing and sales. And, and, and so you have to communicate with, with people who don't necessarily speak a technical language. So it's, um, um, you know, the, the point that Catherine just made about communications, if you're not a communicator, so how do you function, how do you function in an environment like that? But there's, and there's also something that has to be said about the myth of the lone genius, you know, which is, which is a which is a big thing in our society of these like people like Einstein and people who were like lone geniuses who you know invented and made these vast discoveries because they were geniuses and if you really look at the reality they all worked in teams you know that teamwork is really has really been the driving force force of invention in our society you know, forever, but we're only now just coming to the realization that it isn't lone geniuses, that it's teams that have really made the difference. Yeah. If you, and if you go back to even, if you go back to Edison and, and look at the way Edison's inventions were actually invented, there was a lot of pair work and teamwork going on in Menlo Park. It wasn't, um, you know, so Edison and Edison was, was uh, rightly a great inventor, but there were there was a there was a lot of uh, interplay between different person different personalities and different types of of um, different types of of thinkers and I, I think that's a um, a really good point that that uh, and and but but now especially uh, there's such a premium on on 
um, bringing together these different talents and bringing them together in these complex uh, complex projects technically. And then in other contexts, if you say get outside of uh, electrical engineering or mechanical engineering circles, say looking at civil engineering or environmental projects, now now you're into a social realm and the political realm, um, you know, before you, you know, before you say boo. So, it, you know, there's just, there's a, a complexity that demands uh, um, people collaborating and working together in 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 um, in ways that are emphasized or bigger than times past. From your uh, prior appearance on this podcast, you had talked, Dave, some about you know the changing roles of engineers, and part of the current yeah. education philosophy came from the Grint report after World War II that said engineers need to be more like scientists, so we're going to take more uh, calculus and more math and more science. But you know what, what you're hinting at and talked about some in that other episode was the fact that the role of engineers is changing and sort of hints that the current engineering education process is a little outdated. It is designed for the engineer of the 1960s as opposed to the engineer of the, you know, 2020s. Yeah. Uh, But you've also talked uh, about the difficulty of getting change implemented within uh, the university. So, uh, without without getting too detailed yet into how, what you're suggesting that we do, sure. How do you what what makes you think that this idea and your proposal this time is going to catch hold and gain traction and be able to change the work uh, the way that engineers are educated? So yeah, that's a and that's a great question, Jeff. And I and um, I think the the short answer is that we that we're not sure. Um, that that these things will um, get traction. We uh, people have been been trying to change engineering education for for some time now, and it's remains uh, strongly resistant. I I I I think there's some forces though that are coming to bear that we're either gonna we're either going to we're either going to go voluntarily and change things, or uh, we're going to be disrupted. Uh, in the sense of Clay Christensen, that that um, and and some of the forces are technological. When when people talk about things like uh, MOOCs, uh, massive open online courses, mm-hmm. and and what they're doing, and and the kinds of innovators like Khan Academy and people, you know, people doing all kinds of crazy stuff online. The technology is 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 making available uh, all kinds of courses at a different price point than we've. Than we've seen, so that, you know that's one, that's one piece, um, and that'll that'll keep going. The technology, as it usually does, takes care of itself. People do what can be done, and and uh, it runs off and and does something. I think one of the th- the the question that we're we're raising in a whole new engineer is, are are we going to are we going to are we are, are we going to create kind of an engi- a vision of engineering education that lets the technology run there and disrupt in a way that we that we have sort of an educational system at, um, of people bowling alone um, where the technology allows people to sit in their um, sit in their their houses and and uh, get an engineering education online um, but we but but once again, we sort of ignore the uh, the human component of 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 
what our world is is trying to talk to us about. Um, and so there's this there's this this human dimension to this that's up for grabs. Um, that if we um, if we don't think about it, we're we're likely to spin off into this this mooc. Uh, you know, dystopian, <laughs> dystopian future. I can see the, I can see Mel Gibson playing, uh, you know, the future of, of, uh, you know, of, of, you know, it's almost a Mad Max of mooks or something often in a future, a dismal future of uh, people drearily listening to physics lectures by themselves online. Or will we have a future where, um, where we have, uh, kids that are excited about engineering and, and are unleashed to the possibilities of, of helping people and doing cool stuff in the world um, um, together and with other people. And I, so I think we, you know, we, we face a choice, but I think, I think the forces are taken us someplace. The question, the question is where, and as at many turning points, there's some choices to make. And I think, and I think we're at one of those, those points in history right now. Yeah. Yeah, and there's an inst- there there are institutional issues, but there are also on the ground issues in the classrooms, and you know a lot of, a lot of it has to do with educators individually and collectively being willing to give up some of that sense of being the expert and being the person in control and being more open to in interaction with students that is sort of a mutual learning experience. And that's a new way of thinking about education in the classroom um, that, you know, is is a struggle, obviously, but is ultimately what is needed. Well, and uh, and 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 also and I think that's a that's a really important point. It came out in, in a number of ways in, in the books, this whole notion of of expertise being undermined. If you think about MOOCs, um, a MOOCs, a MOOCs undermine faculty expertise in the classroom. I mean, if you've got uh, uh, if you've got someone like Feynman on online doing physics lectures, why do you need Joe Blow um, at Podunk University teaching physics um, when you've got sort of high quality lectures online? Um, so the whole notion that that expertise having once been valuable, no, it's now, now it's a commodity, but, um, so, so professors say, well, that's fine. I I don't really dig my teaching anyways. I'll go be a, a, a great researcher. Well, if you look at young people today, they're off doing research on their own. And we came across some cool stories of, of young people inventing. We tell the story in the book about Jack and Draca, uh, uh, who at, at the time was in a ninth grade biology class. Um, and he invented a strip for detecting pancreatic cancer. Well, that undermines professor expertise in the research lab. And so if the expertise of the professor is being undermined in both teaching and research, that that doesn't mean it's going away, but an economist might say returns, to expertise are being diminished in a certain way. What does that mean about uh, the future of the of the university? But uh, we've, we're painting sort of a negative picture here. And, and you know, to go back to the original question, Jeff, the, you asked, well, okay, what's different? I think there's there's some positive things too. We live in a time of great bounty, where mm-hmm. there are 
there are technologies that we can borrow, think intrinsic motivation and coaching and cultural stuff. There's stuff that we can bring to the party that gives uh, change management. There's stuff that we can bring to the party that will actually gives us hope that this time could be different if we want it to be different. You know, that, that at this point in time where there's some choices to be made, we've actually got some pretty cool tools, uh, pretty cool technologies that are uh, technologies of um, that that lead can lead us in a more human direction in some of the ways that we uh, educate our young. Mm-hmm. And, and Catherine, so everybody's concerned about education. I mean the the uh, uh, the current you know uh, controversy and 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 debate about Common Core sort of you know leads to that. Mm-hmm. So from from sort of an outsider's viewpoint. Is there any difference in the way in in the engineering concern about education, or are we just having you know the same the same conversation that everybody else is having about whatever their particular field is? Well, I think there are many obviously many similarities i mean in terms of student engagement and passion and and uh independence uh offering students opportunities to you know be um, there you know to be self starters and to have respected ideas and and that kind of thing is across the board in education but this you know the you know the special challenge for engineering is really to is a larger cultural shift um and it's of of greater interest to society really because engineers are sort of at the just happen to be at the center of the great movements of Mm -hmm. our times but also uh engineering because of you know the what David has talked about is the you know the whole Grinter et cetera era has locked engineering schools into a kind of uh, process that is like has like stamped out a lot of that creative learning and because there's so much technical stuff to learn in engineering the institutions have been loath to experiment creatively for fear that basics would get left behind and that engineers would graduate not knowing the stuff of engineering in favor of being creative. And so when you address those issues in engineering, you have to also address those concerns about getting the technical stuff right. So I think it's an extra challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've I've heard the difference described as the, the balance between, uh, just in case education, which I guess you could consider the, the current engineering curriculum, which is we're going to we're going to stuff that undergrad with every little bit of of information we can possibly stuff into them in four years or five or six, um, or or just in time education, which is we're going to teach them enough so that they when the time comes for them to learn this material, they've got enough of background to come up to speed for whatever project they're working on. Right, and I think the secret I think the secret is. If you is is the concept of lifelong learning that if you teach if you teach students the you know the basics and how to learn then you know they're going to go out into the jobs that you have to learn on the job anyway you know you don't come into you don't come into a job with your head stuffed full of everything there is to know about engineering mm-hmm. it's it depends on the circumstance that you're in so how do you train how do you teach students to be able to be, 
you know, flexible to the circumstances. So it's, it's, it's a, it's a, a, a learning process that includes not just the technical issues, but also the, you know, the ability to communicate and the ability to keep learning and to be facile on the job and, and those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Well, and I, you know, this, this whole piece about the Grinter curriculum, Grinter gets actually a bad rap. One of the things we learned in writing the book was that, um, there were actually, um, the, there, the version of the Grinter report that was published and adopted was was only one vision. There was another vision that was put forward that was a broader sense of engineering, more design education, many of the things that we're calling for now um, mm-hmm. that was put out there, and the deans of engineering killed it. <laughs> and and so there so there so this raises a question you know and, and 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 Jeff you said you know you made the distinction between just in case versus just in time well um just in case of what and i think i think the decisions made the decision made by the deans back then and decisions continuing to be made were made just in case um um the engineering profession would be thought of as say uh, less smart or less good than than the scientists. I think a lot of sure. I think a lot of a lot of the decisions made were not made on they weren't made scientifically. They weren't they weren't that wasn't good engineering decision making back then. It was based it was based in large part on status and seeking high status through um, through technical expertise, which was ascendant post-World War II. And so I think, you know, so I think, um, you know, one of the, when we go back and, um, you know, when we look at that, why, why do we teach the things that we, we, we do? I, I remember having a conversation with a faculty member, I think it was a case Western, uh, and, and they said, well, I, I was saying some of these heretical things and the person got angry at me and I, and they said, well, where's, where's the data for the things that you're saying? And I said, where was the data back in the Grinter report? That there's never been data to make these decisions. That we pretend as though the teaching of science and math um, at the expense of other things is itself a scientific choice. Um, but it's not. It's just a pra- it's a social practice. And the, deci- the decisions made were made um, on on other on other grounds and we cannot debate whether they were made on status grounds but they but they there's certainly there were there were no double blind studies saying put more science in the curriculum back back then um and so there there may have been some good reasons and that was a time when narrow technical expertise was more um was in some sense more valuable than now so um but so what do we what do we what do we choose to do now yeah, and what are you training? What are you training people to do and be? There, in the book, we talk about a, a study that Woody Flowers from MIT, I guess, yes, he, MIT, yeah, um, talked about where you know they did a study of the difference between what students in engineering learned. This was a few years back. Mm-hmm. They did this uh, and what they used in their jobs, and found that there was you know there was a great, you know, gap in, in what they needed to know for their jobs and what they learned and the stuff that they used yeah. that they knew, you know. So, uh, you know, I think that's the pressing question. Do you think it's, it's more important to ask, I mean, I think you've identified something 
um, key there. Oftentimes, I think university programs will go and ask who they believe their key stakeholders are for their product, their students, which is mm-hmm. employers. And I was going to say, um, I, employers often have no clue exactly what they want or what they need, especially from new hires and new degree engineers. Yeah. Do you believe it would be better to, in your research, has it been better to ask the people who have been fresh out of school but been in industry for a few years? To to better to ask them than to ask the the employers is that is that the question? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Better to ask them than HR or engineering managers. Yeah. So this is a you know this is a tough question because um, you know so that you have the same problem in uh, in in designing new products for people. If you go to them and say, well, what new product would you like? Um, you know, we, you know, so, um, uh, Alexander, if Alexander Graham Bell had said, well, okay, I've got this thing where you can talk to people at a distance, uh, over wires. Um, it, do you want this? Nobody would know what you're talking about. And so there's a, there's a sense of, 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 at, so when you, so if if you ask any of the stakeholders sort of individually, well, what it is, what is it that you'd like in in the new engineer? Um, you sort of get back an answer of, well, we, you know, you get back sort of the engineer plus plus. You get back sort of, uh, well, we'd like them to, um, and we'd like that. So they, you know, we'd like them to be. Uh, 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 technically capable or even more capable than the ones that we currently hire. And we'd like some of these other things that, that don't seem to be working very well, but in terms of sort of packaging that or saying, you know, what that really is, people have a hard time doing that. I think, I, I do think that there is a sense that students are very sensitive to what will get them employed and that young people going out mm-hmm. into the workplace um, feel the mismatches of uh, you know what? When they walked off into the workplace, what was it that was misaligned? There's, there's all kinds of there are gaps all. You know, Catherine alluded to this, but there are gaps all over the place. There are gaps between what uh, you know, the, like the Woody Flowers gaps of what students need versus what they get. There are gaps in terms of what professors think are important versus what students think are important. There are gap. There, they're just there. You know, if you had this. You know, if if you if you had a product line with this many gaps, um, you'd probably be out of business. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there was a good um, short article in a, a book we always bring up on here, or at least I do, um, by Jim Williams, the Art and Science of Analog Circuit Design, and in it he tells a story uh, called "Tripping the Light Fantastic" about. Um, Edison and, you know, the invention of the light bulb and what worked and what didn't work. And it's, you know, exactly like you said, asking for what you would like and then just showing them something they didn't know they needed. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and actually going back that far, you know, one of the things that we do and there's a, there's a, in chapter three, we do a little um, survey, quick survey of history. But if you, if there's a sense in which what we're calling for in a whole new engineer, um, existed in the 19th century and not the 20th century. There was a sense of engineering being big and integrative and engineers putting things together across different disciplines and, and, and uh, doing cool things. And even uh, the heyday of, you know, when, when um, Maxwell's equations were, 
were, uh, and, you know, Faraday's experiments were applied in electrical engineering back in the late 1800s. Electrical engineers were rock stars. I mean, they were, they, and they owned the, and they owned small companies, but those small companies became big and then engineers became socially captive to them. But there was this moment in the eight, in the, in the 19th century, in the 1800s, when, when, when engineers were kind of, um, big and creative in kind of a way that we're sort of gesturing at now. So there's a sense of, of, of back to the future in some of what we're saying that, 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 that those times and our times, unlike the 20th century is calling for kind of uh, a bigger, bolder, broader kind of engineer. Yeah. And you, you can kind of see that too, with the engineers in the media. I mean, Elon Musk is getting championed mm-hmm. around like they may yeah. have. And, um, Dean Kamen, who started mm-hmm. First Robotics and did the Segway. Yep. Yep. Yeah, there's definitely some return to that. Yeah, the the engineering connection to the biggest social issues of our time is right there, as it hasn't been for 100 years, you know, with the climate change issues, with, um, with uh, resource issues, with technology you know, the students that I talk to, you know, they're excited about those issues. Yeah. And so there's a connection, there's a social connection that's very vivid. Well, and it, and it, but, and, but it, it's also diverse in a sense that we, you know, in iFoundry, we had sort of, when we asked incoming freshmen to say, um, what do you, you know, why do you want to be an engineer? We got these three flavors of answer. We got the, I want to be the next Max Levchin, the next co-founder of Illinois, co-founder of PayPal. Um, so I want to be, I want to, I want to start a big tech company and, and, and do that. And then we get some kids that want to save the world and in, in the sense of being social entrepreneurs or, or, or making a difference sort of with their engineering sort of hands-on directly. And then, and then we got sort of uh, cool technologists. I want to create cool technology, which is sort of the modern version of, of, um, of sort of traditional engineers, you know, wanting to be a part, be a part of something, but, but they're, they're different. There's sort of, there's a diversity of aspirations that's uh, among young people. That's pretty cool right now. So can you teach each of those aspirations in the same way or does do really we need some some ability to to customize the education so that what every student is getting is not sitting in a giant classroom with 600 other people that are getting the same education, but saying for your interest in, you know, biology or, or biomedical engineering and and uh, you want to be a, a business leader, we're going to give you a different education than the person across the hallway who wants to be a, a, a uh, you know, a thermo engineer, a thermodynamicist, and who really wants to do research. Uh, yet at this point, you know, until before we get them to grad school, we pretty much give them the same education. Yeah. So there are there are examples of educating differently. Um, the University of Texas El Paso now has a leadership engineering program mm-hmm. um, where they where they do that. There there's a lot of emphasis in many different places on having um, entrepreneurship be a part of the curriculum um, in fairly tangible ways and getting kids involved in in either doing startups or um, doing business plans. Um, uh, many campuses have a have um, uh, engineers without borders and other kinds of social entrepreneurship uh, available. So I think there's um, the 
you know the the market's demanding this and we're at, we're seeing it show up i think in terms of you know what you do some of the examples i mentioned were in the classroom but many of them were outside the classroom that's always attention this students are seem to be getting what they want in large part outside the classroom in, in various student societies that they join. And some of the tension is about how do we get some of the stuff that they want and need in into the classroom in ways. And and on the other hand, there I think there's there are a number of things that cut across all of all of these different desires. Uh, and and you know so when you when and when you look at teaching communication skills um, in a way that they become they become sharp, and I actually I really hate the term soft skills, but we we don't really have good language to use around um, those skills. But even that that term implies that they're in some sense less important than um, um, than Newton's laws and Maxwell's equations. So how so how do we how do we teach those kinds of skills in a way that's sharp that that gets um, um, Get students to uh, be team players to, to for example, to, to make that concrete. So you want to be a good team player. All right. So one of the things you better master is the, the notion of making a request and making a commitment and coming to agreement with your teammates. Well, uh, uh, it's, it's really interesting, but um, a Chilean engineer named Fernando Flores, who highlights uh, our chapter seven, um, did a um, as a young man was a um, uh, was a the uh, uh, minister of economics and and finance in Chile he was thrown into jail. He got out of jail. He goes to Berkeley and he does a dissertation where he 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 looks at the philosophy of language and applies it to the company of the future. And and his applying speech acts philosophy and things like requests and commitments um, uh, has, has changed the face of executive and leadership coaching. And it seems, and, and it seems to us in the book, it should change the way how we teach communication. We should stop calling those things soft skills and we should think of them as sharp skills that are really important to develop, understand how requests and commitments work, understand how assertions and assessments work, um, and separate the facts in your speech from the, uh, from your interpretations in your speech in a way that, it, that you understand that there, that, that people in your team have have many different points of view and let's teach, let's teach these communication skills to these young people in ways that they, that they can cut across social entrepreneurship and technical and technical entrepreneurship and, and being a good, a cool technologist. Right. And I also think that one of the distinctions that we can make between sort of the old mode and a new mode is, has to do with the structure of the, the education. I mean, typically, because there was so much technical material to master, what has occurred is that the first two years of engineering school are given over to more technical things and not until like the junior and senior years where students get, you know, set free to do their own cool projects and, and other things. So if you flip that idea so that by the, so that in the very first year of engineering school, students are allowed to do cool projects and see themselves as engineers that makes a huge, you know, that's a huge mental shift that affects the rest of the educational equation. 
Um, and, you know, that's one of the things that we talk about in the book. Yeah. Does that mean the last two years will suck? <laughs> yeah. So, so I, so, and that, and that's a good question too. So, you know, so Olin has fairly successfully, you know, so there's traditional teaching at Olin, but there's, there is a sense in which some of, you know, some of the, the physics and engineering science is, is done more just in time. So if you have a good dose of design where someone's, um, so Olin has this nice course in the freshman year called Design Nature, where uh, kids design um, various gizmos from, inspired by nature. And, and, and the last project's a team project um, where the kids design something and their customers are, are kids from the local elementary school. So there's a sense of customer and cool stuff. But, there's, but, but some of the, the tech, technology that gets put into those projects in the first semester freshman year is, is pretty significant. And, and so it, it flips it on its head, though. So you, you're using the technology, but you don't, you don't have, quote, what we've traditionally called the basics but now your curiosity is up. Okay, now I know what this. Now I know what can this stuff can do. That drives the desire to learn the math and the physics and stuff, rather than the math and physics being a bitter pill that must be swallowed before you're allowed to do the chocolate of design. <laughs> I like that one. I also think that designing to uh, you know elementary school customers is a pretty accurate analogy to designing to real customers too. Sometimes, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Elementary kids are more cogent. Yeah. Well, and and the, and and the elementary kids have some pretty, as my understanding is, they have some pretty good observations and yeah. and uh, complaints about about these projects. It's 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 a really it's a really cool course. There are, there are a lot of really cool elements inside the. When you look at the Olin curriculum, there things look nice from the outside, but there's some pretty cool things that um and 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 practices that are pretty. Sus- pretty subtle and also very human and very social in a way that, um, that deserve, well, that deserve the kind of scrutiny that they're getting. I think Olin's had 400 schools visit, um, visit them over the course of their history and, and the number keeps increasing. So, um, and engaging the, and the, engaging the students early on is essential because one of the crises that we talk about a lot is the fact that people drop out of engineering school at a very, you know, high level. And why do they drop out? Because it's too hard, because it's, you know, maybe because it's boring, they're not engaged. So, you know, engaging them early on is critical to, you know, keeping them motivated and keeping them in the, in the school to learn. So. So, Catherine, we've uh, we've mentioned uh, iFoundry. Dave made a mention of that. You've mentioned Olin College here. Could you give us the the nickel tour of uh, how Dave and Mark came to know one another and and what this iFoundry and Olin College has to do with the book? Yeah, you know, Olin College and and iFoundry at the University of Illinois sort of became the laboratories that we used as. You know, to uh, not that there weren't, you know, interesting things going on. And we give examples from other schools as well. But that was our laboratory. Um, Dave from iFoundry and Mark from Olin College. And the two uh, the two colleges uh, collaborate, you know, formed a collaboration and, you know, shared ideas and 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 students and and projects and became committed to that. And and that's how. 
you know, Dave and, and Mark, who are sort of like the odd couple of engineering education, Dave from the, the vast University of Illinois system and, and Mark from the little Olin upstart. And, you know, Dave, mm-hmm. we call them David and Goliath, actually. And except that they're not trying to kill each other, they're trying to work together. <laughs> right. And, um, and what was exciting about it to me was Olin College is a wonderful laboratory. Anybody would want to go to Olin College. It's very small and it's very innovative and they don't have any boundaries about what they can do. But Dave's challenge was much greater in many respects because he was part of an existing university system with all the restrictions and the bureaucracy and, you know, that, that goes along with that. So he couldn't be Olin College. So he had to come up with an idea for, which was iFoundry, for how he could infuse, um, you know, a, a state university with the same dynamics. And, and the, one of the big surprises that we talk about in the book is the fact that with very few resources. I mean, Olin College had, you know, a vast, you know, foundation behind it. And with very few resources at the University of Illinois, he was able to achieve with, 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 a, with his student body some of the same dynamics. Thus, the answer to, you know, the, the transformation of, of engineering education hasn't got as much to do with big, big, resource uh, infusion as it does with the simple dynamics of learning processes that were, you know, deemed to be like uh, transformational and creative. So, so, Mm -hmm. so that's, that's their story in a nutshell. Yeah. So I, I, those who I talk with from uh, big universities uh, who are familiar with Olin are, you know, admire the, the, the effort that Olin has made, uh, and the innovative uh, approaches it's taken to education. But I have heard numerous times, many more than once, Olin doesn't scale. Right, exactly. You know, the, 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 the concept is if I've got a classroom with three or 400 students, there is no way that I can give them the sort of hands-on, project-based attention that they're getting at Olin College. Yeah, and Dave can speak to that, I think, because – that was kind of the breakthrough that I found. Yeah, so th- so there are a bunch of assumptions, you know, packed into the actually even the language that was used there. It, it give give it, you know, so give this thing to um, has the implica- So what's the implication in that? Um, it, it assumes that the important work that's being done in a in a university is being done by the professor. And th- that the scalability mm-hmm. depends on the ability of professors to to touch more students, um, um, uh, or, or, or touch students in a, a deeper way than can be done in a large in a large lecture hall. And 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 um, one of the things that was the the biggest surprise, um, and, and we and actually both. Both Olin and Illinois went into the book thinking that it, it, you know, we we sort of talk about the assumptions that we think we made at the beginning of all this, and both said that the important actor is really the faculty member. And I think one of the pieces of learning was no, the important actor is really the student, and 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 what goes on and 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 in inside of the student um, 
and that if if that become if we shift, it, it, you know, it's a it's a Copernican shift of you know the uh, of in, instead of the the sun revolving around the Earth, we're going to revolve around these these little suns that uh, these students. And if you you make that shift, um, and you and you do it effectively, that there's there's this untapped energy source that um, that explodes, and um, and you know we tell the when we tell the iFoundry story, we um, you know we we had these uh, we had the small uh, one hour course in iFoundry. Uh, um, was called Introduction to the uh, Missing Basics of Engineering and a, and a zero-credit extracurricular called the iCommunity. And we put students on teams mm-hmm. aligned with their aspirations. So some of the kids were on entrepreneurship teams. Some of them were on a, a team called Engineering and Service to Society. They wanted to help people directly. And others, was a cool technology team called Art and Engineering Design. So there were these different teams. And then we, we set them loose. And and And... They said they asked us, "What do you want us to do?" We said, "I don't know. You want to save the world? Start saving, or you want to be an entrepreneur? Go build something." And 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 they complained bitterly. In fact, I think some of the blogs are still online. If you go on, you can go read them. And in September of this experiment, the kids are complaining. All oh, these iFoundry guys—they don't know what they're doing. And then about midterm, something happened. Some of the, they started to do some of their project work. The project started to work, and and they made a a presentation about their team's plans. And we're in the middle of this and the presentations were nice. The plans were pretty cool. Some of them were further along than others, as you'd expect. And we're, we're doing a Kaizen session, an improvement session in, in the middle of this thing. And a young woman, uh, Jamie Kelleher raises her hand and we were asking for improvement. She said, I, this is an improvement. I just want to make a comment. Jamie, what's your comment? And she says, we weren't sure you were serious about us doing what we wanted to do. And then we realized you were, and it was really cool. And she said that, and I looked at my, I looked at Karen Hyman, my associate director, and she looked at me, and we both knew that something had just happened, but we weren't sure what. And from that moment forward, the mm-hmm. kids started to do stuff on their own. It exploded. They they visited. They got on buses. They went to Chicago. They got on airplanes. They went to Silicon Valley. They they ran social events. They had an I skate with I with capital S K A T. They they had social events. They brought in speakers from IDO without asking our permission. They just started to do stuff. It was it was great. And we what what just happened? Mm-hmm. And when we compared that to what was going on at at Olin, it, at Olin we had seen the kids be alive, and and we and when we talked to them we we were impressed by the classrooms and we were impressed by all the stuff that went on in Olin. But the thing that got us is that as freshmen, we, we were talking to engineer, young engineers who got it, who got that engineering was this cool thing that they, that they affiliated with and that they wanted to be. And, 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 um, Mm -hmm. and they bragged on it. And when we started to get this effect, we said, Oh my God, we're, we're not spending the same amount of money. We're not, we've got this one little pea shooter of a course but we're getting the Olin effect, what we call the Olin effect. We were getting the cool stuff about Olin at low cost. 
and and without a lot of extra resources, with almost no resources. I think that first year we had a hundred thousand dollars. It was ridiculous, um, but we were getting we were getting we were getting this explosion of student interest, and and you say, well, did that last for all four years? And the and you know the the and we and there's some interesting stories to say about what continued in iFoundry and what didn't continue. But but that experience stayed with those kids. Catherine interviewed them for the for the book, and and there were many times when um, a kind of old style professors tried to turn these kids off to what had been unleashed, and it didn't work. That the, the that experience of, of of efficacy stuck with them, and and so there's it's it's really interesting. We think that what we're doing is so important in the classroom. We as professors, and what we found was no. You, the, how, how we ask the question: What is it that really unleashes these young people to take charge of their own learning and their own education in this enthusiastic way? And 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 we you know we think we I think the book we try to we don't pretend that we have all the answers, but we think we're at least asking some of the right questions now and giving some tentative answers that make some sense. So your your method of doing this is. Um... You, you, I mean, you come down in, in the book, you talk about what you call the, the pillars of educational transformation. And, and these are, uh, factors that would be, uh, I don't know. I, I would, I would think most professors, most professors would go, you have to be kidding me. You know, I, <laughs> I, I have, I have to, I have to trust my students. You know, yeah. my, 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 my entire, my entire course is set up that, they are to do their homework independently. Yeah. I have to. I have to make sure they turn in their homework on time and punish them if they don't. I have to get them to take their tests and give them a bad grade if they don't study hard enough. And when you know when the end of the semester comes, I will. I will sit in judgment as to whether they have passed yeah. my course or not. That that's hardly a a environment of trust. Yep, exactly. And and you know and what we're what we're saying the pillar is is not just. That you, the professor, have to trust the students, but they have to trust you as well. So it's an environment of mutual trust. So once again, it's a there's an equality in the classroom that is is like kind of a shift from traditional thinking. But it's but it's the same kind. It, it, it you're pointing out you're pointing out what's one of the reasons why the shift is hard and why uh, it will continue to be resisted. And you're also pointing out the difference between um, companies that people want to work for today and companies that people avoid like the plague. So people right. want to work, people want to work for companies that, um, that have the have the food court and uh, give you a day to work on your own stuff and the kind of rigid hierarchy and the and fear driven management are companies that people are avoiding and it seems to us that it's this that that education is behind the curve here that industry that that the best industries and the the best companies are figuring out ways to trust their people and to use intrinsic motivation um uh, a la the you know Dan Pink's book Drive, Ed, Ed, uh, Edward uh, uh, DC's work on 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 intrinsic motivation and, and self determination. How do we how do we how do we unleash how do we unleash people and and it's not trust for 
trust for no reason, we think that the, there's an equation, um, an emotional equation that's at work here. And, and what we, and, and um, when we looked at Olin and we looked at, at iFoundry, we said there's almost nothing in common uh, physically, size-wise, age-wise about these two things. But the common thread between them was the sense of this equation that a faculty member trusts a student, the student feels that trust, they take initiative um, to possibly make a mistake and fail, and then, then they succeed, and then, and then they get the confidence to, to learn on their own. And we call that, that, that trust, and essentially they have the courage to go to go do this thing that is hard and possibly will result in failure, and so it's it's trust leading to initiative, or courage, and initiative leading to to learning that is the central thing that's being missed, and that's exactly what you don't get in a system that doesn't trust. When it's the professor doing exactly what you said, Jeff, not trusting the student, telling them what to do, grading them, judging them, where's the learning? You, you're just following, you're following a robot-like plan that this teacher's devised, and you get a grade at the end, but, but do you know anything about how to, how to find new problems or how to solve different problems or how to apply this to something that wasn't, that wasn't handled by rote in this class? And so if we're serious about lifelong learning and people taking charge of their own education, somewhere there have to be these kinds of experiences of being trusted, taking the risk, and uh, of failing, and and um, failing and learning from it, or succeeding, and 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 uh, then having the confidence to go forward. Right, and so is the. So my thought, my thought was, well, maybe we have this wrong. Maybe we don't need the professors at all. If what you're saying is correct, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you you tell in the book the story of the, uh, yes. the Indian uh, children who learn uh, on their own. Right. And I'm, I'm wondering, from what I, I'm just curious, what your thought is? If we stick a bunch of bright engineering students together and give them, you know, some some uh, capabilities, you know, access to a shop and and access to a library and some good internet connection. And you say, don't worry about the grades. Will they learn on their own? Hey, Catherine, do you want to, I've got stuff to say, but do you want to jump in and say something? Well, yeah, well, I mean, the one thing that, you know, one, we do talk about the whole new professor, as mm -hmm. we call it. And, you know, the, and, you know, that sort of reimagined as a coach, um, as you know, it's not the uh, sage on the stage, you know, it's like in the coaching environment, the professor t plays a different role of encouraging learning and advising without being the one who's just delivering learning as if the children, the children, as if the students are receptacles that they're pouring information into. So it's just, it's a different image of I think that the professor is absolutely necessary, but in a different way maybe than has been practiced in yeah, the past. But, but even if you have the, the caring professor who wants to do that or is able to do that, there's so many hours in the – there's a limited number of hours in the day that, you know, yet again, the professor can't get to them all. But if you've got a group of students who are working together and able to, you know, fulfill their own needs of, you know, explaining and, uh, you know, sort of going to Eric Mazur's 
you know, peer instruction, you know, yeah. students are capable of teaching one another. Maybe that's, that's how it does scale is, you know, at some point you just need the, the, the professor to jump in every once in a while to keep them from going too far off track. Yeah. So I, th- so I think, you know, so if you look at examples of things that work, um, uh, along these lines. So, you know, look at any of the design teams at a, at an engineering school, the S, the SAE, uh, formula race, the Baja race, the human powered helicopter, all these, uh, the concrete mm-hmm. canoe, whatever. Um, it, it's essentially the situation that you described, Jeff. You throw a bunch of, a bunch of kids in a room. They've got some sort of goal of something that they want to accomplish and they do it. They spend hours doing it. Nobody's, you know, they're, they're not graded for it. And there's a lot of learning going on. And, um, part of, uh, our, our work on the book, we came across, uh, this, uh, junior enterprise operation going on in, uh, much of the world and now starting in the United States. But in junior enterprise, kids start uh, small consulting companies and they take on real world projects. Um, and it's very popular in Brazil. Uh, many of the big companies in Brazil will not hire a young engineer unless they've um, been on one of these junior enterprise uh, companies uh, at their at their school. Um and the kids run a consulting firm and they and and I had the pleasure of working with uh uh, a really cool team at um, UFMG in Belo Horizonte, Brazil, and those kids were, you know, they were experienced because of that that work. They were experienced project managers, and they those kids were enlisted by the associate dean at the time to help um, uh, build a a, a a launch experience like uh, like we had at iFoundry. So a student. A, a student inspired or a student actually a student led team designed an educational a modification to the educational experience in in a way that that actually affected what was going on at that at, at that school so i i don't i i think again it's we have to we have to stop thinking about the only ones having input or doing real work at a university being the faculty member, the, the, the students can play uh, a much more important role in, in, in their own learning and um, uh, mentoring younger students. And, and they're, they're all, they're all kinds of possibilities and we haven't yet really even tapped all those possibilities, but you're, but at a big public university, you're not going to get to kind of Olin like results unless students are somehow working with students. Also in your question was this issue of sort of structure versus freedom. And there are a lot of polarities like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, rigor versus quote unquote soft skills. There are a lot of polarities in, in this. And it appears, sometimes it appears that it's one versus the other, like we've got to choose. But there's this, in, in the coaching world, this, there's this work on polarity management. How do we manage these different poles? So nobody's saying get rid of the technical education of engineering. That'd be insane. But how do we manage the technical education with these other things and and do a more appropriate balance at different at at different times? And sometimes that may not be a lot of hours. Uh, It might might just be variance on the on the existing experiences that gives us the kind of the uh, the kind of experience that that the the students need to be more fully assembled when they go into the workforce. Mm-hmm. I was going to say, it sounds like a great book so far. I can't wait to uh, pick up my copy and dive in. Great. 
uh, Dave, we've. Oh, I was I'm sorry. Go ahead. You guys do a book tour. I'll be. Uh, I'll be in line. <laughs> well, and we're, and, you know, we are. I think one of the things we're going to try to be fairly modern about this, and and uh, we're you know, we're doing podcasts. Uh, we're we're going to launch the book on uh, a Google On Air Hangout uh, a week from Wednesday, um, and we hope to do a lot of our um, our book tour work in a virtual kind of way. Show up at a lot of schools. Um, um, but, but use, uh, use the technology we've got to, to, to get this word out to lots of places, um, you know, without, um, you know, without having to, uh, well, burn, uh, build up my frequent flyer miles or Mark's frequent <laughs> flyer miles. Yeah. Fair enough, I guess. And so Dave, how does this wrap into the whole, uh, big beacon effort, uh, you are, uh, or Big Beacon is a a educational partner of this podcast. Yeah. Uh, after you were on the last time, we agreed that we uh, we admired what one another were doing, and uh, so we've we've uh, sort of sponsored yeah. one another. So, what? Yes. Uh, how does how does the book re- relate to the Big Beacon mission, and where does Big Beacon go from here now that the book is uh, ready to go? Which, by the way, it will be published on October first. This episode will be published on October 2nd. So if you are listening to this podcast, you can probably go buy the book. Yes. And, uh, and actually even, even now there it's, it's, it's kind of seeping out. The, the book's been printed. It won't, but by, it should be up and available to, to everyone, any, anywhere, uh, all the major online booksellers, uh, in both, uh, uh, ebook format and, and, uh, and hardcover. Um, but, um, so, so big beak, you know, so big beacon is, is framed as a, as a social movement to help nudge engineering education into this more human humane path so that we don't ignore these emotional and, and cultural variables that we've been gesturing at, um, here tonight. And, and, um, and to this point, um, the um, you know we've so over the last two years we've had the Big Beacon Manifesto and we've we've had a small volunteer uh, uh, force uh, engaging with people. Um, a large part of the works continues to be the communication of of what it is that um, we should be talking about. I I think one of our theses and in, in the book and in the Big Beacon is that we've been talking about the wrong stuff. Mm-hmm. That we've been talking about content, curriculum, and pedagogy. So we've been talking about the artifacts of the educational culture as the target of change, but that the actual things that need to be changed, this shift from expert to coach, this shift from fear to trust, this um, the uh, that that that's the actual hard bit about this. And so the first job is to recognize what it is that actually we need to change. And just, now it's, it's not that curriculum is unimportant or pedagogy is unimportant, but if you do those things without really recognizing what the real um, heart of change is all about, um, you, end up, you end up doing those things cosmetically, you end up going through the motions, and you end up with an educational system that looks a lot like the one that you had with uh, a few extra buzzwords floating around. Right. So, so to get at the heart of change, we think that a, a big part of, of this next phase is to get the, 
uh, is to have this have a global conversation about these things. But, um, are are we certain that everything that we said in the book is a hundred percent correct? No, but we, as the the book is a provocation. The book is a call to have a conversation about the future of engineering and what what do we want it to be? And people can disagree. And there's a there's a pluralism in the book of respect for different points of view. People don't have to agree with us, but let's let's have this conversation and let's not be afraid to use words like trust or joy. Those are scary words. You know, engineering teaches you to to stick to the rational side of the ledger, and using those using emotional words like that was actually one of the hardest things that Mark and I had to come to deal with. We we I remember when we were working on that chapter, we started to use that language and. And we were both looking at each other like, "Well, our colleagues ever ever speak to us again? Well, are they going to they going <laughs> to lock us up in the funny farm?" But once we used those words, they felt like the right words. And, and we've had the experience of giving talks and using those words, and it's like it breaks the omerta of the of the of the educational mafia that we can't talk about joy or trust or courage anymore. Once you say those things and people go, gosh, it is really that, isn't it? It's that deep and it's that human that, that once we get over on that side of the ledger, now we're talking about the right stuff. Now it doesn't make it super easy to get from fear to trust, but at least now we're talking about the right thing. And then we can say, and what we've learned in leadership coaching can actually help professors get from from fear to trust. What we've what we've learned in speech acts can get our young people to actually understand how to use language in a pr- more precise way and a sh- yeah, sharp, soft skills, if you will. So, so it it, mm-hmm. it 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 points us in the right direction. At at the end of the book and in, in the epilogue, we call for collaborative disruption of the status quo. Uh, and by that we mean um, we're really gesturing. At, uh, well, we we actually use the the model of an operating system, and that's kind of interesting. If you think of you think of Android and Unix and other operating systems, they're open, and we think that the that one mm-hmm. of the things that we have to get away from is this kind of each school thinking of the other as a competitor. You know, I I spent some time this last year working at Purdue, and and my colleagues at Illinois. You know, it was like. Uh, like you know, that's like heretical to go work down the down the road a couple hours at a at a school because they all think that they have you know the way they teach uh, circuits or statics is a competitive advantage uh, to the school down the road. But the road, but the real enemy is this curriculum that, that's a legacy from the fifties that isn't serving our kids anymore. So how do we work together to sort of learn how to get these things in? Learn how to how to how to get faculty to shift from fear to trust, um, get these kinds of communication skills into the curriculum. How do we how do we figure out how to do that together and to share best practices with one another, not just in this country but across, but around the world? And so we call for we call for the the Big Beacon views itself not as a membership organization but as a as a dot connector among other organizations and institutions and individuals who want to come together to 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 try to um, openly innovate to 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 change the existing system. Right. So Catherine, uh, we're we're getting close to the to the end of the the interview here. We don't want to keep you all night, but I did 
want to ask you what it is like uh, coming in and, and helping people write books and trying to uh, put words to these ideas. I'm sure people come with this this emotional sense of they've got a message to share, and you're the person that helps them figure out how to get the right words onto the page to to deliver that message. What? How did you get into that, and and what's that like? Yeah, well, what it is is very simply is being interested and curious, and I'm interested and curious in this topic, and I present myself as a person who is like I'm curious to know what's going on in, in, you know, in your ideas. And in the process of explaining it to me, we create a book is, Mm -hmm. you know, and we create a book that can be read, not just by people who understand everything about engineering, but people in the, in, in society who are interested in this topic. And so, you know, I, I'm sort of, I sort of present myself as I'm your, I'm your reader, You know, I'm your person who wants the answer to these questions. And that's the way that we approach it. And so in the process, I become enlightened. And in the process, um, Dave and Mark learn to, uh, you know, work through some of their ideas in language and ways that they hadn't done previously. So it's that's the nature of this kind of collaboration. Right. So wandering into this book, what was the biggest, uh, you know, sort of hole? What, what, what was the area that, that coming into it is like, we've, we've got to, you know, this explanation doesn't hold water or doesn't, we, you know, we need a better, a better you know, way to, uh, uh, to say what we're trying, you know, to match things up. What, what was the biggest problem that you had to deal with? Well, you know, I wouldn't pose it as a problem so much as what I've learned in, 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 you know, writing books, and it was certainly true in this case, is that it's a discovery process. You know, it's mm-hmm. not, you know, Dave and Mark had ideas that they wanted to get across, but, you know, the, the ideas actually flower in the process of, of articulating them and writing about them. And so, you know, the, the challenge for all of us was to stay flexible and open because we went back and forth and we, you know, you know, tore up the structure several times in the, in the process of coming to like, and, and had many aha moments also in the process. So that, you know, that's what happens. And so, you know, you have to be open to the process and not get too frustrated by what seems to be like total chaos. Um, you know, it's kind of like building something, you know, you figure out what works and what doesn't work. And then when you put, turn the switch on and nothing happens, you go, okay, let's go back to the drawing board. And so, you know, that sort of happened in the process of writing the book. But the result was finally like we made many discoveries and there were surprises throughout. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, go ahead. I'd just like to add that, you know, one of the tensions was between, you know, so one of the reasons, um, it's pretty unusual for a couple of academics to work with a writer like this. And so neither of us, neither Mark nor I had any experience doing this, you know, so you, you work with kind of, you collaborate with people on writing projects as a professor, but, but not with a professional writer and not with the idea of having a strong narrative structure. And so one of the things that we wanted in the book, we, we didn't want it to be a dry uh, technical tome or we didn't we didn't really even you know there was research in the book but we didn't want it to be 
viewed as a piece of research. We wanted it to be lively business book was essentially our model. We looked at guys like uh, Dan Pink and Dan Heath and, and other of the top business writers as sort of the model for the kind of book that we wanted wanted to write. And But one of the tensions there was uh, between um, great storytelling and um, – and the and the logic that uh, that engineers want. So we had so one of the challenges was to tie those things together. How do we make a logical case with strong narrative? And so one of the tensions was to um, to kind of get those to to work together. So and and um, uh, at the end of the day, we think we we think that it does. Um, but there were times when we wondered whether we had gone too far on the narrative side and whether we had kind of thrown logic out the window in ways that our uh, our engineering cards would be taken away from us. So so there's this <laughs> there's this nice so there's this interplay and I think you can see it between you know telling stories, hearing student voices, uh, going back in history, um, and and telling anecdotes, but but also making kind of a, a good a good conceptual um, case. And having the idea, having the book stand on its ideas in a way, and that that was that was really hard. That um, and I, I would say, if if you wanted, you know, we had hoped to finish the book in a year. The the reason it took two years was was that tension. Mm-hmm. And so, Catherine, you've worked with a lot of uh, authors, some of them fairly famous. Uh, yes. So what? Was there anything different about working with these two engineers, these two, you know, geeky professors that uh, that was different than a lot of the other people you've worked with? Well, you know, not really. Um, okay. <laughs> it, you know, it, because because for me, it's always the same thing. You know, tell me your, hmm. your ideas. You know, why why are your ideas meaningful and exciting? Uh, you know, how can we talk about them in a way that people will understand? Right. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a human process. Um, and the content and the structure flow from that. Right. So, so once again, we discover that, that engineers are people too, just like everyone else. They are people. And, you know, they, you know, they weren't too nerdy, you know, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> all, well, I mean, all things considered, you know, they're regular people. Right. Well, we have uh, we've probably come to uh, to about the end of of this uh, this episode, and but I did want to ask uh, now that the book is done, uh, you you have a message of engineering education reform. Uh, who is this book directed to? Who who do you want to go out and buy the book and say there are some interesting ideas about uh, engineering education? So. We, so there are a number of audiences, but you know the the key design feature was to um, to write it so that uh, um, anyone could read it. And you know, one of the when I give it to to lay people who don't know anything about engineering, there I've I've now had this reaction uh, four or five times. Um, they'll come back and they'll say, you know, I. I didn't expect the book to be that interesting. <laughs> and I guess that's because it has engineer on the cover of it and they go on there and they're afraid of it, but they read it and they start reading these stories and the flow of it and, they, and, and, uh, and they dig it. And, and that's, I think that's been, 
that reaction is sort of my favorite thing to get. Uh, somebody will read read a chapter and read some of the you know, some of the stories in it, and they'll and they'll be excited, and they say, you know, and it and it actually flows, and and um, I don't know if it's a full page turner, but it but but it's more interest more interesting than they expected. So we so we wrote it for for everyone. Of course, not everyone's going to be interested in this. So um, we we wrote it for. Um, um, we, you know, we wrote it so that educators could read it. We wrote it so that engineering students could read it. We wrote it so that uh, working professionals could read it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, policymakers, employers of engineers, uh, we we hope will read it. Uh, you know, we think that some of the um, some of the messages in there have a fair amount to say about uh, not only engineering education in universities, but also professional development in, inside our engineering firms. Um, uh, and then I, I think the other, you know, there's sort of a, a crossover audience, a number of people in writing testimonials for the book said, you know, this isn't really just about engineering education. I think Catherine made this point earlier that, that many of the things that we're talking about in the book apply to all of higher education and actually maybe all of education writ large. And, um, and so, there's sort of a secondary audience of people interested in reform in in higher ed. And, and one of the cases I, we think the book makes is, Hey, if you can do emotion and culture in engineering, you can do it just about anywhere. And so uh, we think that there's a sense in which the, the kinds of things that we're talking about that took place at Olin and iFoundry are sort of bounded worst cases. Uh, if you can do these things, if you can get people to actually talk about joy, trust, and courage at the University of Illinois, then then maybe we can do that in, in K-12 and, and, uh, and in higher ed around the world, not just engineering. Exactly, yeah. Right. Well, so the uh, the book we is uh, will be available. Where, where do they – so where do people go to find the book? So the yeah the easiest place is go to there we just ha- just went live on a new uh, a new book site attached to the big beacon site a whole new engineer.org. and okay. uh, there's uh, there are places right on the front page they can there are buttons to push uh, they uh, the the book should be available in hardcover from uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble um, uh, people can buy it in bulk from eight hundred CEO read. Uh, dot com. They can buy a Kindle, Nook, and uh, iBook versions um, uh, from appro- appropriate uh, um, sellers. So it's available both in you know the hard, it's available in hardcover and uh, in the in the ebook in the ebook versions. Okay, and and we will have a link on the front page of our website as well uh, if somebody wants to uh, to go there and find uh, how to get the book. So. We'll try to make it easy for you if you want to get it from the front of the Engineering Commons podcast page. Cool. So, so uh, any any final words for uh, uh, the engineers of the world uh, based on your your experience with with engineering education? Uh, things that they should be doing to make the world a better place. Catherine, would you would do you, do you want to weigh in on that? Yeah, you know, I think the message is that you can do what you love and change the world and find joy in doing it. I think that's the underlying message um, of the book. It's a nice way to wrap everything up. Fantastic. That's a, I like that. That's a good message. Put a little bow on it. <laughs>
I don't have I don't have a thing. I, that, that's a beautiful way to end. I I have nothing to add to that. That's lovely. Yeah. Well, well. So now, if uh, somebody should want to get a hold of uh, each of you uh, together or independently, how how should they uh, go about doing that? What you want our email addresses? Well, if you have a, a email contact that you'd like people to have, if you if you prefer they don't have it, I'm happy we don't have to put that in. I mean, I'm I'm perfectly happy for anyone to have my email address, Catherine Whitney at Mac dot com. And for you, Dave. Yeah, I'm on uh, my email address is uh, uh, deg delta echo golf at bigbeacon dot org. Okay, and um, my uh, Twitter is deg five one one, and my uh, Facebook is uh, facebook dot com slash deg five one one, and uh, big beacon is available at uh, bigbeacon dot org, and um, on Twitter at Big Beacon, and um, there'll be virtual events and and Google on Air Hangouts and in other ways to um, to join in a conversation about the book um, as uh, as the year and and uh, in this year and next year will be pretty big years in terms of getting the word out. Fantastic. Well, I certainly appreciate uh, your your willingness to come and join us this evening, both Catherine and Dave and uh, sharing some information about the book. And uh, thank you so very much. We've, we've enjoyed having you on. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for coming on, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. It's been a delight. Thank you. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson. 